Lord, we are thankful, Lord, uh, for that passage that you have saved sinners. I think all of us in this room can probably insert ourselves at the end of that passage. We feel sometimes to be the worst as our sins are brought before us, as we reflect on our sins, Lord. I know it's not culturally acceptable or something that is not encouraged, Lord, to focus on the negatives or to focus on our mistakes and our weaknesses. But Lord, where we are weak, you are strong. And Lord, we pray that you would bring the sins in our lives before us right now. And I know we've already spent time confessing, but Lord, I just have a burden on my heart as a pastor, as one you have called to be a pastor, to be one who is a shepherd over your flock, as you told Peter before you ascended into heaven to feed your sheep, Lord, and I'm burdened, Lord, because I'm not really sure I'm capable of feeding your sheep. I don't feel very strong. I don't feel very uh, capable or have the skill or talent to do such a thing. And the people in this room, and some of them I know very well, some of them I don't know well, and yet you have brought them here, you have called them here for whatever reason, Lord, and therefore they are our responsibility to shepherd and to faithfully preach your word to and to see them sanctified and to be presented before you blameless and holy. And Lord, I don't believe I've done a very good job of that. And Lord, I am burdened by them. Lord, I am burdened by the sin in their lives and Lord, I pray that you would help me and others in this room who are pastors, who are leaders in our church, and Sean and Denton especially, and, and Robert and Josh who are deacons of this church. It is our goal and our responsibility to present your people spiritually mature. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for putting other priorities before that, for being more uh, excited or more uh, celebratory about how many people are in the room and less about what you're doing in people's lives. Lord, I pray that our number one priority in this church would be that people would be in love with you. And also, Lord, that we would encourage your people, that we would exhort your people to go about preaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God that is here to the nations and to the people in the city that you would give them a heart for people that don't look like them, that don't talk like them, that don't have the same opportunities as them, that they would have a heart for them. Lord, we need you to give us a heart for people who do not know you because our natural heart is to ignore, to block out, to forsake, to not speak out towards, and not pray for. Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart. Lord, I pray that through this message the sermon through your word that you would bring your people to maturity that you would bring your people to an understanding lord that you are above all things and that you would 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 would, would be something that they would their hearts would be captive towards and that you would rid them and that you would get rid of all the distractions and all the other things that their heart is so easily and captivated towards that they would only be in love with you we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, our children's memory verse is from Psalms 8-1.
Um, Psalm of David, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. That is a verse that our children worked on last week. And uh, we're probably uh, responded or memorized to their teacher this morning. Uh, our catechism question. We're getting towards the end, actually, of our catechisms. Uh, if you would read the underlying portions with me, the answer. What does Christ's resurrection mean for us? Christ triumphed over sin and death by being physically resurrected, so that all who trust in Him are raised to new life in this world and to everlasting life in the world to come. Just as we will one day be resurrected, so this world will one day be restored. But those who don't trust in Christ will be raised to everlasting death. And our passage for today is, we're continuing our study in Luke. It's Luke chapter 4, the end of this this chapter in Luke. And I'm going to read starting in 31. If you don't have a Bible, there is, you can use the screen. Most likely all you have your cell phones, so you can look at your app on your cell phone. If you don't have a Bible app on your cell phone or your iPad or your device, there's some really good ones out there. There's a ESV uh, app that's free that is really good. And there's also the um, Version Bible app that has many different versions on it. Uh, and uh, so there, if you're an NIV fan or a CSV fan or a New King James fan or whatever, whatever, you can use those versions. They have some really good reading um, uh, schedules and, and plans in there as well that you can follow along. Uh, before you go to bed or before you wake up. And so I want to encourage you with that. And they're all free, obviously. Uh, Starting in verse 31 of Luke chapter 4. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished in his teaching, for his word possessed authority. In the synagogue there was a man uh, who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Interesting that the demon says this, right? You're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, and having done, and having done him no harm, and they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority... And power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out to every place in the surrounding area. Verse 38. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered uh, Simeon's, uh, Simon Peter's house. And Simeon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had... Had, who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. Yeah, another demon. You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. They knew he was the Christ. It's fascinating. Verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the, God, the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Verse 44, and he was preaching in the synagogue of Judea. Interesting 
story. This is one of five of the miracle stories that happen on the Sabbath in the book of Luke. This is the first one. Uh, just kind of uh, the title for the sermon is proclaimed to all the kingdom, to all the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God has come into the world. And, and that we see this as we kind of continue on this kind of theme from last week. This, that Christ has come to proclaim the kingdom of God. Uh, kind of a main idea. The kingdom of God was inaugurated in Christ. Is continuing by the spirit through the church. And will be fulfilled by Christ's second coming. Is the transformative power of God on sinners and the punitive judgment of God on the defiant. That is the kingdom of God. So, another question that the world is asking Does Christianity actually work? Some would argue that it doesn't really work. Like it maybe works for some people who are, you know, drug dealers or, or those who are on death row and they have nothing, no hope and, and, and nothing to, to, uh, to, um, be excited about, they have no joy, they are hopeless, and so Christianity or a religion, they believe in it, they put their faith in it, and it supposedly transforms them, makes them sad about their mistakes, makes them sad about their past life, and they feel guilty, and then they ask for forgiveness, or they have this change of heart. But for some people, they think, well, that's good for some, but I don't really need that. I've never really done anything bad in my, in my life. I've not done anything so bad that I should feel really guilty about. So therefore, I don't really need religion. I don't really need Christianity. I don't really need a Savior. I don't need redemption. I don't need anyone to die on the cross for me. And so therefore, religion doesn't really, it's not something you need. It's something that you feel like really, really works Os Guinness said that Christianity is not true because it works. It works because it is true. It works because it is the truth. It transforms people's lives. Those people who think they don't need Jesus, those people who think they don't need salvation and redemption, are not, like what I was praying about, have yet to acknowledge the sin in their life. They've yet to acknowledge that, yet they may not have killed anyone, they may not have stolen anything, but yet they have done things that inflame and, and defy God. And so, the gospel, the good news transforms sinners into saints. Romans 1.16, it's the salvation of Christ is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.16, for the word of the cross is fully to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, the power of God, that Christ Jesus saves and redeems and transforms and converts people who were once dead and brings them to new life. Ephesians 1.10, we are his workmanship, right? We are those who have been redeemed. Christ's mercy has been rained upon us. His grace has been given to us. That we have been raised in Christ Jesus. And now we are God's workmanship. That we have been saved for good works. Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That those who are saved, those who have been redeemed, that you may feel like you are a wreck, that you are completely broken. Why would Christ ever save you? You're such a sinner. You still make mistakes. And the hope that 
Christ is doing a work in you and he will present you to his father holy and blameless. That is a great truth. Romans 8, 29, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That those who have put their faith in Christ will be conformed into the image of Christ. The Sunday night group, the Sunday growth group, we've been talking about the image of God and that because of Christ Jesus, this image of God, this bearer of God's image is restored through Christ. That now we don't reflect Adam, we don't reflect sin, we reflect Christ. So Christianity does work because it's truth. It's a transformative power of God. The kingdom of God has come into the world. Uh, we talked about last week from Luke 4, 14 through 30, that Jesus begins his ministry. He goes into Galilee and he preaches throughout Galilee. He proclaims the truth of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God has come. So then he goes back to his home, the town of Nazareth, towards the northern part of Galilee. Kind of, it, we, we see that it's, it's up on a hill or it's up kind of in a higher elevation than Capernaum, which is near the lake of Sea of Galilee. And he reads from the prophet Isaiah. He tells them that he has not come to proclaim the gospel exclusively to the religious Jews, but he's come to be the physician to those who were sick, to those who were broken, those who were spiritually dead. And the people of Nathers went crazy. They went nuts. They literally lost their minds when they heard Jesus say that he came to fulfill Isaiah 61 and he came to preach it to those who were far off. Those who the Jews at that time didn't think deserved God's mercy. That Christ came for those people. They tried to literally kill him and they wanted to push him off the cliff. His own people, the people he grew up around, the people that he knew very, very well, who knew him well. They wanted to kill him just by saying that he came to save the broken and the lost and not just the religious Jews. I don't know if you remember your American history from high school or whenever you took American Revolutionary history, but do you remember those who were tarred and feathered, right? The tarring, the tarring and the feathering. I don't know if you remember that picture, probably in your textbook of American history of the, of the, of the, of the colonists, the Bostonians uh, of, during the, the Revolutionary War, who, who there was a, a, a British loyalist who was a customs Agent, basically, he allowed the trading to come into the harbor, and he was a British loyalist, and they were mad at him, and they were furious at him because of the tea uh, tax, and of course you have the Boston Tea Party, and they were so angry with him, they were so mad because of his loyalness to the crown, that they put poured hot tar on him, and then feathered him, literally put feathers on him, And it is crazy. These people, these mobs were so inflamed by this loyalty to the crown that they literally tried to kill him. His name was John Malcolm, and, and he actually got tarred and feathered twice by, the British, by American colonists, by Bostonians. And kind of a similar attitude that the, the, the people of Nazareth had towards Jesus, that they hated what he said, inflamed them. They were amazed by Jesus' words, yet they did not believe him or worship him as Lord. So we get to our text today, and this is from verses 31 through 35. And point number one is the kingdom of God judges the defiant. The kingdom of God judges the defiant. Of course, we learn from the Nazareth story, as we lead into this story. Um, again, like I said, this is the first uh, miracles on the Sabbath. There's five in Luke. Uh, we have here, we also have 
4.38, we have 6.6, we have 13.10, and we have 14.1 of Luke. So he goes into Capernaum, which is a city or a town in the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee, and he's teaching on the Sabbath. This is a regular practice of Jesus, that on the Sabbath he would go into a synagogue and he would preach, he would teach, he would read from the law. Very similar to what Paul did in Acts. He would go to a synagogue on the Sabbath and he would preach the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, the one who rose from the dead for sinners and, and to bring redemption. He would, he would preach this to the, the Jews in the synagogue. And so we see that he goes and he preaches and he talks. He, he talks about the the, the uh, he, and, and his he talks about the gospel. He proclaims the truth of the kingdom of God that has come into the world. Uh, and we see this from Mark one that he that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he spoke with authority. They say that he he spoke as a king who came to install his kingdom. And they were amazed. They were astonished by his words. They were astonished by his Teaching, We see in Luke 4.18 that they were astonished by his words in Luke 4.18 that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And they were amazed by his words. He says, I come to fulfill these things, that today is the day of the fulfillment of this this promise by God through Isaiah. And they were astonished by his words. He spoke with such conviction and power and people were amazed. He was telling people and crowds that, had, that he has come to fulfill God's promises. He was full of wisdom and knowledge and they were astonished. Because he didn't hold any title. He didn't come from Jerusalem. He didn't learn under some amazing, uh, some amazing rabbi or teacher or scribe of Jerusalem. He was a boy whose father was a carpenter from Nazareth. It was amazing the words that he spoke, the knowledge that he had, the wisdom by which he had. His teaching invoked a response. He was the Son of God, and he was filled with the Spirit of God, and they responded in amazement. They responded with astonishment. You know, I was a, a kid. I you know, grew up in the, in the 90s and the early 2000s, and I grew up watching Tiger Woods and watching Peyton Manning. I remember watching, I mean, I wasn't a huge golfer. My grandfather took me to play golf when I was a kid, and, and I was a big Tiger Woods fan, right? I mean, Tiger Woods was the Michael Jordan of golf. And I thought he was, I would watch the Masters. I would watch the U.S. Open. I would watch the British Open, the PGA Championship. I would even watch other uh, tournaments that were during the week just to watch Tiger Woods win. I mean, he was so amazing to watch. Um, I've never actually never seen Tiger Woods play in person. I've seen Phil Mickelson play in person. But I've never seen Tiger in person. But even watching it on television, you're just, you're amazed by the way that he, the way he played, right? You're just in awe when you watched him play. Very similar when I was a kid and watched Peyton Manning play. Peyton Manning was so amazing. Like, I was astonished. I remember I, watched, I saw him several times uh, as a kid uh, when he played for, for UT. And just like, oh my gosh, this, this guy can do anything. And just completely in awe. Right of his talent and his his the way that he played. There was a similar astonishment by Jesus' words that these people were astonished by him. Now the text does not say that the crowds moved past amazement to worship or belief in his identity. 
He was becoming a rock star like the crowds who first heard Billy Graham preach his crusades. They were amazed by his words, amazed by his power, amazed by his authority by which he spoke. The king has come into the world teaching. His teaching proves that he is one with power. The power of the word of God. We think of Genesis chapter 1 where God said, let there be light and there was light. Right? He, he spoke and things came into being. God, Christ spoke with that same authority and same power. You think of Exodus chapter, uh, chapter 20 before the Ten Commandments. Thus says the Lord that God says these things, that God spoke these words and it became law. It became the Ten Commandments. That Jesus spoke with the same authority, the same power. That Jesus is God and he speaks with power. What he says is not only true, but it's something that should be followed and obeyed. And there was this man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And it's interesting what he says. Like, you have to kind of like, when you read this story, you have to just really focus on the words of this demon-possessed man, because it's fascinating what he says. You have these people of Nazareth who were, yes, they were astonished by his words, but they did not say this about Christ, did they? You think about the crowds, they didn't say this about Christ. But you get this demon-possessed man, and you get some amazing worship. What does he say? He says in verse 34, Ha! Have you, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's not coming from a priest. That's not coming from a religious teacher. It's coming from a demon-possessed man. That worship can come from such wickedness. It's interesting what he says. It's interesting that he says, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Jesus rebukes him. He rebukes the demon. The demon was fully aware of Jesus' identity. He acknowledges the supreme power of Christ. He knows he has the power to judge him. Or he wouldn't say, have you come to destroy us? He would never have uttered those words if he was not afraid. If he was not understanding the power and authority that Christ possessed. He would never have said what he said. It's like the first things that come out of his mouth. Have you come to destroy us? Holy one of God. We believe sometimes, we get caught in believing in kind of the yin and yang, right? The Eastern, uh, Asian, Eastern um, philosophy and religious thought, this dualism of equal good and equal evil, right? That good it fights against evil, but they're both kind of fighting against each other, but they're all kind of equal. They're in this struggle together. That is not reality. That is not reality. Satan doesn't have equal power with God. Or you wouldn't see what you see here, that Christ literally has power over Satan, that good or God and Christ Jesus and his spirit, the Trinitarian God, has far more power than Satan. And actually Satan serves God and Satan, in the book of Job, has to ask God for things. Christ has power to judge the enemies of God. Be silent and come out of them, he says. The demon knows his fate before God. The sad truth is the people of Nazareth do not. Their similar defiance against God will lead to judgment by Christ. Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor, yet many will reject reject the good news. They will reject his promise of gladness and joy. Like the demon, they will be able to articulate the facts, yet will be defiant in unbelief. I mean, the demon is right on, isn't he? I mean, perfect theology. 
Holy one of God. Perfect theology. But yet defiant in unbelief. Knows the facts. Knows the knowledge. Yet does not believe. Does not worship. Because they do not worship him as Lord. And trust him for their salvation and joy. Some of you sitting here know Everything there is to know about Christianity. You've been growing up in the church. You've read books. Some of y'all probably know more theology than I do. Some of you probably have memorized more verses than I do. You may know more Christian music than I do. You may know a lot of facts. You may know a lot of truth, but you don't believe it. and You don't worship it. and You don't follow it. And you're not obedient to it. Therefore, judgment is on you. As these demons are experiencing you know the vernacular, you know the, the vocabulary, you know the code of dress, you know what to say, you know what to look like, you know how to act in church, but you don't believe it at all. And therefore, you are defiant before God and judgment will be upon you. You don't worship, you don't believe, you remain defiant and your fate will be the same as the demons here. There's a funny video if you've not seen it, you should go find it and watch it. But there's a, a YouTube video about um, a, a kind of a husband and a wife. And the, the husband and wife are sitting on a couch. And um, uh, she uh, is having, she's sad, she's having concerns. And she talks to him about just having these issues. And she's like, I have a headache. I, have a, I just have a lot of pain in my mind, in my head. And I don't know where it's coming from. And he's saying... It's coming from the nail in your head. Like you've got a nail in your head. That's why you're having headaches. That's why you're having a hard time sleeping. Because you've got a nail in your head. And she's like, stop telling me. Like you just need to listen to me. Like, and she keeps telling him. And he's like, you've got a nail in your head. That's why you're having headaches. That's why you're a fellow of uncomfortable. You've got a nail in your head. And a lot of us, it's a funny video, but a lot of us are like that. We don't acknowledge the obvious problem in our lives. That the problem is, is that we're defiant for God and we don't worship Christ. That's the problem. It's so obvious, but we say, oh, it's something else. I might get enough sleep. Uh, I just need a better situation. I just need better friends. I need a better wife. I need a better husband. I need better kids. Whatever, whatever, whatever. And that is not the issue. It's the nail in your head. It's the sin in your life. And you're not worshiping Christ. Defiant to the truth. Have you come to destroy us? The demon says, the kingdom of God is good news to the sinner. And if you remain defiant, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And judgment will be upon you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, nor sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And, each, and such will come of you, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with the Spirit of our God. The unrighteous will not enter the kingdom of God. Defiance will not enter the kingdom of God. The second point in verses 36 through 41, the kingdom reverses the consequences of the fall. The kingdom reverses the consequences of the fall. Going back to Luke, they were amazed 
They're amazed by what Jesus just did. I mean, he cleansed this man of the demon possessed of this unclean spirit. He says, he rebukes the spirit. He says, be silent, come out. And it came out. Didn't harm the man. They were amazed by what just happened. Not only did they hear Jesus speak with authority, they saw him do something with power and authority as he cleansed this man of his demon-possessed spirit. What is this word with authority and power? He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. He was not simply a scribe or a teacher of the law. His words had power and he displayed the power in his actions. It's not like a preacher who just speaks with power, right? And some of you are like John Piper fans or John MacArthur fans or Matt Chandler fans who spoke with, you're like, wow, man, he's, that guy can preach. He speaks with power. See, Jesus could speak with power, but he also could display his power by, by healing the sick and cleansing those who had demons in them. His words had power, and he displayed his power in his actions. We have like a lot of examples of bad authority, don't we? I mean, uh, a lot of presidents have exposed bad authority. Richard Nixon is one who, who hated opposition, who hated his enemies, his political enemies, and hence why he broke into Watergate and caused that, that issue into what ended up leading him resigning from his office. But he couldn't stand people who were against him. He couldn't stand op- opposition. So he used the power of the presidency to, to, uh, to wiretap and, and prosecute against. Uh, another person, and I, I know some of y'all are from Indiana, and he, this guy is, like a, is, a, is, a, is a famous person. He's, a, he's someone that people look up to, but it's Bobby Knight. won three national championships at IU. He was fired in the early 2000s. I, I just watched a documentary about him just recently about someone who who used his power in such horrible ways. Um, there's a, there's a, obviously, if you don't know this, why he got fired was in one practice, he grabbed the neck of one of his players and literally tried to choke them. And there was a video of it, and he used his authority and his power, not for good, but for evil. We have other examples of those who use authority and, and power in a, in a negative way. But Christ, and that tends to filter into our thoughts about God and Christ. That we think about authority, we think about power, we think about authoritarian, and we think of someone who is, who is, we think power corrupts absolutely. But Christ had authority and power to heal and to save and to redeem. That Christ's power is to show not only authority and to show command, but to show mercy and love. And that power is not inconsistent. It's not like he is, uh, that he judges some and doesn't judge others, that he just does whatever he wants on a whim, that God is consistent, that you can, you can, understand, you can, you can put your faith and trust that God will always act the way that he always will act, that the way that he promises he will act. That Christ came to rebuke the demons. That he came to transform people's lives. And we see that here in this story. And we're moving on to the next miracle. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. She had this high fever. 104, 105. At those days in the first century, you had 104, 105 temperature. Most likely you're about to die. It's not like it is today. And they appealed to him on her behalf. They believed not only in his words, but they believed in his identity. They believed he was the Holy One of God. They knew he could heal her because he was God. 
They believed. They trusted. They only thought his words were amazing, but they believed that he can do amazing things. So they asked and appealed to him to heal Peter, Simon Peter, that he would heal his mother-in-law. The gospel of the kingdom of God transforms people. If you trust in the power of the gospel, it will transform you. So he rebukes this fever. And I love what, what happens. Like, it, it's not like he partially heals her. It's not like she, yeah, she gets a little better. It's not like, well, she's going to get better. Like it's a medicine that you have to wait, you know, a few days for it to kind of kick in. But that he completely healed her. That the fever was completely gone. What is it? And it's so fascinating. What, what, this little bit, bit, bit of information is so important. These little details are so important in understanding God's word that it doesn't just end with he rebuked the fever. And it, it didn't just end with it left her. But then he said immediately she rose and began to serve them. Like immediately she is completely healed. It's not like she needs to take a nap. It's not like, well, she needs to take a shower or a bath before she really feels a little bit better. It's that she feels immediately better and just starts serving them. Like she bounces out of the bed and she starts doing stuff. Like she starts serving people food and, and, and drink, what, whatever she does. This immediate response from her healing, from her transformation is to serve people. What an amazing testimony of her response. The last Point, the last set of verses is verse 42 through 44. The kingdom of God must go forth. The kingdom of God must go forth. So the only thing about the kingdom of God is punitive judgment against the defiant. Not only is it transformative power to transform people, but the kingdom of God must go forth. We have this last little paragraph here at the end of, at the end of chapter 4. And when he was, and it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. You know, like we even see at the end of, of the, the paragraph before in verse 42, 41, that all these people were coming to get healing. They have these people with various diseases and Jesus putting his hand upon them and healing them. There's all these people that wanted him to, to fix their problems, to fix their physical illnesses. And he, he did do that, but there was others who then sought him when he went away in a desolate place seeking for more healing. And he tells them that I must go to their town. I must go and go forth to other places to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God because that's what he was sent to do. He wasn't sent just to heal people. He wasn't just sent into one town to heal a bunch of people of their diseases. He came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, which is to, as we see in verse four, chapter 4, verse 18, which is to proclaim good news to the poor, to set, uh, to, set, to proclaim liberty to the captives, proclaiming sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And other people needed to hear. Other people needed to hear the gospel. Luke 19.10, he came to seek and save the lost. We see about the parables that Jesus, uh, that Jesus uh, teaches, that to seek the lost sheep, the one lost sheep. To, he leaves the 99 sheep to go find the one who is lost. He came to save the lost. I was, uh, this past week was at a conference, Denton came with me and and uh, my wife came, Lisa, and we, we heard John Piper preach 
This is an amazing passage about joy. I mean, he always preaches about joy. Kind of his thing. But he, he preached out of Psalms 4, 6 through 7. He talks about the light of God shining upon people. The light of God shining upon people. And that's the kingdom of God. People need the light of God shown, shown upon them, to shine upon them. Because if it's not, if it's not, they will not receive the joy and the gladness that comes through knowing God. A better joy, a better gladness that the world does not know, the world does not experience unless they hear the words of God. Unless they hear the kingdom of God, they will not have this joy. They will not have this gladness that God promises. Think about Psalm 1611, that in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy, that pleasure forevermore is at his right hand. People will not experience that unless they hear the kingdom of God, unless they hear the good news of Christ. They will not experience this joy. They will not experience this blessing. And people need to hear. And Jesus came to proclaim the truth of the good news. He didn't come just to stay in one town and heal a bunch of people. That's not why he came. He came to display the, the, the majesty of God who not only creates but redeems people. That's what he came to do. All nations of the world, all income levels, all genders. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're a slave or a rich man or man or woman or young or old, that God came to proclaim his good news to you so that you can have joy and gladness and redemption. There's a few applications that I want to just share coming out of this text that I want you to understand. I want you to, to kind of write down or just reflect upon is that the reality of God's judgment on the defiant. It doesn't matter if you know a bunch of stuff about it. doesn't matter what, how many Bible studies you go to. It doesn't matter what your attendance record is at church. If you don't worship Christ, if you don't follow him, if you don't, when you read his word, you're not... Uh, changed by it. When you hear songs of worship that says, behold your God, and you're like, eh, man, something more. Eh, whatever. Is that leading you to praise? Do you need to reflect on the possibility that you truly don't worship him? The reality of God's judgment on the defiant, not based off knowledge, based off the absence of faith. These demons knew a bunch of things. And Satan knows all the things about God, but yet he shudders in fear before God. The second thing is confidence in our worship. One of the other things you can learn from the demon in his testimony is he knows who he is. He knows who Christ is. We see in three occasions where we see Jesus identified by the demon. We see the Holy One of God. We see the Son of God. We see the Christ. They understood who Christ was. And yet we, who are believers in Christ, have less confidence in our worship. Less confidence in our worship. We have this doubt, like, is he truly the Son of God? Is he truly the Holy One of God? Is he truly the Christ? And the answer is yes. And we should come in into these, into these places as we worship him, as we read his word, and we need to have confidence and who he is. May that come out in our worship. We also need to, number four, is appeal, number three, appeal to Christ's transformative power in our lives. We need to appeal, as we see this, them do with, with, with Simeon's mother-in-law, they appeal to Christ's transformative power. And the Bible says that 
those who were once in darkness have been transformed in his beautiful light, that we have been transformed into his kingdom, that he has redeemed those who have been dead and given them life. Think of Ephesians 3.16, that, that through the Spirit of God we have the inner strength, the strength of God in our inner man. Think Corinthians 5.17, that the, the gospel makes us new creatures in Christ. That there's this transformative power in the gospel. And when we appeal to Him, when we appeal to Christ, He will transform us. And the question is, do you ask for His power to transform you? If you're struggling with sin, do you ask God to change you? Or do you ask Him to help you? See the difference between help and change? When you ask God to change you, you're confident He will change you. The next one is response to our realized salvation. That we, do, we, do we respond to our salvation? Number five is service by the people of God without recognition. It's interesting how Jesus silenced the demons not to identify him for who he is. He serves God without recognition. He, he does the will of God without recognition. Too often we serve God in wanting too much recognition. <clears throat> I need to be recognized. I need to be shown how great I am. I need people to know how important I am and what I do and my talents. We serve God without any recognition. We only serve one audience, and that's God, not other people. Preparation for ministry with God. We see Jesus going into a desolate place. Jesus does this often. He departs and goes to be with his Father. He goes to pray to prepare himself for ministry. And too often do we, as mere mortals yet do not go and prepare ourselves for ministry for God. Um, how arrogant. And the, la- and the last one I want to talk about here, the last application is the, the purpose of the church. Jesus was sent to proclaim the good news of the gospel, the kingdom of God, and that doesn't stop when Jesus ascends into heaven. That the Spirit of God comes upon His church so that that purpose can continue. That we go to proclaim the kingdom of God to other towns and to other places and to other people. That we are sent not by people, but we are sent by God to proclaim the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God continues through the church. The authority to teach the word of God. We don't, I don't teach, or hopefully I don't teach, or hopefully Robert doesn't teach through the music, or hopefully uh, Ditton or Sean or other preachers don't teach you from themselves. They teach you the word of God because that's where the authority and power is. And the church is given the keys of the kingdom of God, where one or two are gathered, where two or three are gathered, so I am with them. Meaning when we agree, when we teach the word of God, we have authority and power. The authority to love. That God has commanded us and called us to go and love people like Christ loved people. That we should be the model of the transformative power of God. That Christianity does work. And we're models of that. That we once were sinners but are being renewed. And we are seeking holiness because our God is holy. Therefore his people should be holy. And people see that. And we model that. And just kind of in conclusion, um, I heard this this week that I thought was really interesting. You know, what, it, what it means to be a church? What does it mean to be the people of God? Here's what it means. It means that we are in a sense or like some people in the future, like think back to the future. And we have come with our DeLorean, uh, for our, whatever that car was called, that ugly car that they drove in back to the future. We, we come from the future. We come to this, this age and we tell people 
That this is what the church is. This is what, this is what is true. This is what the future holds. And we show them that what the future holds is that Christ is coming and he is, he will reign. And that a new kingdom is being ushered into this world. And there's a new ethic and there's a new understanding and that Christ Jesus is transforming people. That we love all people because Christ loved all people. That we have an understanding that all are inclusive in the church because all races, all nations, all people are saved by Christ. That all people have access to the throne of God. And we tell people this. We tell people that the church isn't a bunch of white people in the church, a bunch of black people in the church, a bunch of Hispanic people in the church. That all people are in Christ's kingdom and his church through salvation in Christ. And we should tell people that because that is the future. That is the, the age to come. That God's kingdom will come into this world and it will take over and consume and his kingdom will, we will see God's saints and his citizens worship him and his kingdom. There's a song that we are going to sing called The Power and the Powerless. And I love that chorus that says, shout. Shout it, go on, and scream it from the mountains. Go on and tell it to the masses that he is God. He is God. He is God. He, God, has transformed people. There's stories in this room of God's transformative power in your life. And that testimony proves that God and Christ are real. That it, it, it does work. That isn't some, some opium to the masses, but that the gospel does work. That people who hated God, now when they think about Christ, it brings them to tears. When they think about Christ, and they think about his salvation, when they think about his life that he gave for our salvation to be with God, to have the joys of God, to have the, the desires that God wants us to have desires of, to have the gladness that God wants us to have gladness of, that it is amazing and it transforms us and it brings us smiles on our faces and we shout it. And for some of us in this room, we don't have that heart. We don't have the joy that Christ should give us. We come into this room and it doesn't stir us. Like his word doesn't stir us. We are dead to his word. We are dead to his power. And that means that you're not a follower of Christ. And that you have been blinded by thinking that as long as you come to church, as long as you have a Bible, as long as you have the app on your phone, that you're a Christian and it doesn't make you a Christian at all. You have to be one who experiences the power of God in your life. And you have to ask the question, have you experienced the transformative power of God in your life? Because if you haven't, you're defiant, you are ignoring the fact, and judgment is upon you. And I plead with you to appeal to God's transformative power. Appeal to it, and it will come into your life. It will redeem you. It will give you new desires. It will give you new hopes. It will give you new gladness. And it will take away slavery to sin. It will take away your brokenness and your struggles with, with sin. You go with me in prayer. Lord, I praise you for your word. I praise you for your testimony here in this passage of your transformative power.
on display. And for some of us in our room, Lord, we are bored by you. We really are. We, we may come to church. We may sing songs, but to be honest, we're bored. We're just bored. We don't stand in amazement of you. We don't stand in worship of you. We don't behold you. We do not appeal to your transformative power in our lives because to be honest, we just don't have confidence that you actually do anything. We don't have confidence, Lord, that you're anything important. For some of us, we only come into this room, we only come to Christian events because we believe in moralistic therapeutic deism. We believe that to come to church is to be moral. And we have forgotten the the storyline of the gospel that those who thought themselves moral, those who thought themselves righteous were the ones who were defiant. And those who were judged. And those who humbled themselves before you were saved, were given new life, were given eternal life. We were called children of God. Lord, I pray for the people in this room. If they have been bored with you for a long time, Lord, I pray that you would lead them to confession, that you would lead them to repentance, and then lead them to belief and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.